if you are able, would you remain standing? And we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for the reading of God's Word. We are announcing this morning that we have appointed Jim Weston to the to be a deacon intern in hopes of a future appointment or nomination for the office of deacon and gives us a great opportunity to consider the office of the deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting verse 8, we're going to read through verse 13. So people of God, here is the word of your God. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we are in need of your guidance. We, we pray that you open our eyes to see great things concerning your plans for your church. For asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. The office of the deacon is one of those good and perfect gifts that the Lord has given to his church in order for her to grow into the fullness of her head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Deacons are chosen from the membership of the church elected by the members of the church and confirmed to the office by the elders of the church. Uh, the choosing of any, any officer in the church, be an elder or a deacon, is a serious and solemn occasion, and the church needs to prepare itself accordingly. Because of the importance of, of uh, occasions like the choosing of deacons, we have developed a process here at the church that allows everyone involved in this decision to be thoroughly informed. The process is based on 1 Timothy 3.10, where there Paul says, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So here's a process. The session appoints a man to serve as a deacon in turn, for up to six months, no less than three months and no more than six months. In those months, the man serves like our ordained deacons in, in all capacity, except for that man has no decision-making power in the diaconal meetings. The church then has the opportunity to see the man functioning as a deacon. The session, the elders of the church, can evaluate if indeed he, the man is fit for the office and the man himself is able to make his calling to the office sure. So we are appointing, we have appointed Jim Wesson to be a deacon intern of this church for the next few months. We ask that you prayerfully observe him as he serves you in the church, encourage him as he serves you. Listen, and, and I want you to listen to this sermon 
very attentively so that you know what Christ wants you to do. So that you know what is it you're looking for, so that you know how you can serve Jim and be served by Jim and the other deacons as you consider this uh, decision. If everything goes well and um, Jim is nominated to the office, then the election will be uh, in January at a regular, um, regular stated congregational meeting. Another element of this process is that we don't make an announcement till we actually have interviewed the wife of the man. You know, make sure she's on board with it. Make sure that uh, she is, as we're going to see, there's actually requirements for the wife as well as for the men. It's interesting that there's no requirements given, explicitly given to us for the wife of the elder, but there are explicit requirements for the wife of, uh, of the deacon. And we're going to see why that's the case. But uh, our elders interviewed, uh, Andrew and Scott interviewed Tammy, and uh, she's on board with, uh, with Jim being uh, put in this capacity, and uh, we also see her as a fit wife to serve along Jim in this capacity as well. When January or December comes, about a month before the congregational meeting, uh, we will provide an opportunity for the congregation to, together to interview Jim. I don't know if Jim remembered this part of the process, uh, and so that there's a final step for you to hear from him and so on, and uh, figure out if that's uh, the man that you want to serve you as a deacon. Uh, the passage before us this morning is the fullest description of the kind of man who should be ordained to the office. By giving us the characteristics of the man, Paul implicitly gives us a description of the job of the deacon. Do you notice that when we read through it, they're all moral characteristics? They're not a set of skills they are moral, godly characteristics that the man must have. We're going to look at this passage, and, uh, and uh, we're going to do it briefly, because it's a well-known passage. But before we get there, I wanted to look at two other passages that will set the table for us to examine 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 in its fullness. The first passage, the first two passages, are going to explain to us the reason for the office of the deacon. You notice the title, if you notice the title of the sermon is uh, Deacons, an Office of Unity. Uh, and and I, I say that because God invented deacons in order that the church might reflect the unity of the spirit in the bond of love. We tend to think of deacons as the servants of the church, and they are, but primarily the deacons are agents of unity in the church. We see the reason for the office of the deacon and the minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to take one passage. I don't need to turn there. I'll describe the passage to you. You can if you want to. But there's one particular passage that encapsulates the office of the deacon in the ministry of Jesus Christ, Christ as the deacon, Christ as the servant who ministered to his people. And that is John 13, 1 through 20. This is a well-known passage, the passage of the washing of the disciples' feet. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the, 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 the Thursday night, he's going to be crucified Friday. The worst day of, the, of all humanity is going to happen tomorrow. Tonight, our Lord and his disciples make their way from Bethany to Jerusalem to the upper room, where they are going to celebrate the last Passover of the Old Testament and the first, the first Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. 
It was a long and dusty road, and when they arrived at the upper room, it would have been customary for the host to provide a servant who would have gone about the menial but very practical task of washing the guests' feet. It's an open sewer time, dirt roads, their feet, their walking sandals, their feet are dirty, they're going to lay on the couches, on the, on the carpet. So it made sense that that was there, but there was the lowest of the servants that would do that. Uh, the, the household servants have different status, and the lowest of the servants would come and wash the disciples' feet. But when they arrived at the upper room, there was no servant there. One can imagine the disciples looking nervously at one another. Is Matthew going to do it? Is John going to do it? Is Thaddeus, just by the name, he probably should be the one doing it. Is Peter going to do it? Bartholomew, James, the other James, the third James. Who is going to wash the disciples' feet? And while they were trying to figure things out, Jesus took his outer clothes off and wrapped a long towel around his waist in the manner of a slave. Then he knelt down And one by one, he began to wash the dirty feet of the people who John had already told us in the gospel were going to abandon him just a few hours from that moment. Even the feet of the one who was going to leave that place immediately after getting his feet washed to betray him and condemn him to the death of a sinner. After he finished washing the disciples' feet, John tells us, that he looked at, his, at the disciples, Jesus looked at the disciples and said the following, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you, if you have love for one another. Jesus was saying to his disciples that the way he had served them all his life, in that symbolic act that night, and certainly in what he was going to do the next day in dying for their sins, that that was an example to them as to how they were to love tangibly one another. As he had served them tangibly, they were to serve one another. And this is very important because the Gospels tell us that the disciples were having a heated conversation on the way to the upper room that night. As they are coming to have the last Passover of the Old Covenant, the first Lord's Supper of the New Covenant, they are arguing with one another as they walk. Perhaps Jesus was going ahead of them. They are following Jesus. They don't think Jesus can hear. And look, in this argument, they weren't debating the five points of Calvinism. It wasn't about the order of the decrees of God. It wasn't about covenant baptism. They were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So Jesus washes their feet and says, instead of figuring out who is going to be the greatest, just serve one another as the lowest of the slaves. I, who am your master, can stoop down to serve you as the lowest of the slaves. Can't you do the same? Now you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with deacons and the reason for deacons? Well, I'm going to try to make that connection now. God invented deacons to incarnate the example of Christ intangibly and concretely loving and serving the congregation in our midst. 
deacons are given to us as a physical reminder of the ministry of service of Christ in the body of Christ. Deacons are to embody Christ's own service to, of his people, especially as they administer mercy in the life of the local congregation. Let me prove that to you. Now I want you to turn to another passage. Keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3, or do whatever you do, and turn to Acts chapter 6 for a second. Verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6. It says this, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Just a side note, serve tables is the verb for where we get the noun deacon from. Okay? Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and, in the, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. A dispute had arisen in the church. Can you believe the people in the church were fighting with one another. There was a problem in the church here in Jerusalem. Now, good things were happening in the church. The church is growing. The church is very active in caring for people in need, especially widows. And, and we see that, that the godly Jewish people and the early Christians were very concerned about widows and orphans and those who were in need who were part of the believing community. And the Christian church in Jerusalem was apparently doing a good job of it, but a controversial Controversy, controversy, contour. I get stuck. Controversy. That's it. I rose in the church. There were some widows in the church who spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, and there were other widows who spoke Greek. The Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows thought that perhaps the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christian widows were getting more of the food or more of the money than they were. So they, there was a complaint that was brought to, to the attention of the leadership. And when the, the, the controversy is brought to the apostles, who were the elders of the time, they do something very interesting. They don't say... It's so important that we are committed to the ministry of the word of, and prayer that we are just going to forget this mercy ministry business. They don't say that. But they also don't say, you know, mercy ministry of, to widows is so important that we are going to forget all of this brain and teaching and reading our Bibles and leading the congregation and discipleship in the word. Instead, the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say, this is a serious business. We're going to appoint deacons. Acts 6, 1 through 6, is the appointment of the first deacons in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason for establishing this office is so that Christ's love can be tangibly displayed in the congregation. 
The elders cannot fail to devote themselves to the shepherding work of teaching and praying and leading the congregation in discipleship. So the elders, in the case, in this case, the apostles, say to the people, look, here are the qualifications of the men that are going to lead in the mercy ministry in our congregation. Now pick some men that meet those qualifications. The congregation looked at those qualifications. They looked at the men in the congregation and said, we have seven men that meet that qualification, those qualifications. So the apostles appointed those men as the first deacons of the church. The church that Jesus had told the disciples that their witness to the world will depend on the way that they tangibly love and serve one another. So what is the reason for deacons? Threefold. Deacons exist so that the ministry of the word and prayer can flourish under the direction of the elders, and the elders can devote themselves to that. The Aconet was specifically created in Acts 6 so that the elders could pray and teach. That, that, was, that was one of the main reasons right here. Secondly, also equally important, the de- deacons exist to promote unity in the church. Why were they created? Because it was a vision. And the apostles tasked them with bringing unity. Where is this division, deacons? You bring unity. And thirdly, deacons exist so that the ministry of mercy and tangible love can flourish in the local congregation under the leadership and exhortation, exhortation and example of the deacons. So deacons are given to the church as a gift so that the church will love in both word and deed so that the truth will be ministered in the congregation, so that mercy will be ministered in the congregation. The gospel ministry is a ministry of word and deed, as John tells us in 1 John 3.18, and neither must be neglected. It is for the church's well-being to have two classes of officers that are devoted to fostering both aspects of the ministry of the church. The deacon's work is to complement the elders' ministry of the word and prayer. And the deacon is to lead in the local congregation's ministry of mercy to those who are in need in the church. It is an office of service, indeed. It embodies the example of Christ. And in the diaconate and the eldership, you have the whole Christ, as it were, exemplified in ministry of word and deed. Isn't our Savior so merciful that he gives us these two offices that show us the fullness of Christ. When we're saying what something is, it's always good to say what that same something is not. So, let me say a few things about what the office of the deacon is not. As you know, start with the obvious. A deacon is not an elder. A deacon is... um, It's a deacon. There are two offices in the church, and the churches have a plurality of elders, many elders, multiple elders, and the church is supposed to have a plurality of deacons, a multiplicity of deacons there as well. The deacons are not just administrators. They are in charge of the operational and maintenance aspect of the church budget, and they are in charge of the material property of the church and making repairs, but they only do those things because they love you. Deacons are not social service directors. 
some think that some think that deacons the deacon's job is to get out in the community. But in New Testament, the focus of the diaconate is always in leading the church in ministering to the congregation of Christians and to other Christians in need and not setting up some sort of community social service. So the deacon is not an elder. The deacon is not just an administrator. And the deacon is not a social worker for the community. More on the deacons in a moment. And now it brings us back to 1 Timothy 3. God wants men... For the office of deacon who want to show the love of Christ by serving his body concretely and tangibly. So God wants men who are after the reward that comes from Christ, not from other men. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Deacons are men who are seeking the glory of Christ and they're seeking to hear from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servants. And the office of deacon is emphatically an office of servants. The deacon is not out for power or prestige. He's a man who wants to serve. He wants to help when the people of God are hurting and he wants to aid them. When the people of God are in need, he wants to comfort and assist them. He wants to make the Christian claims of love very tangible to those that are suffering. Paul doesn't describe the office in any kind of great detail in 1 Timothy 3, but in Acts 6 and in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, 28, where Paul talks about the gift of helping and the gift of the ministry, and in Romans 12, verses 6 and 7, where he talks about the gift of service in, in, or in serving, Paul indicates that the office of deacon is not the office of the elder in training. It is not the office of janitor. It is not the office of, oh, I hope one day to become an elder. It is the office of service in the church. It is a goal unto itself. It is a high calling. It is not a lesser calling than any other calling. It is a high calling in the church of Jesus Christ. Very important, necessary for the well-being of the body of Christ. When men are elected to the diaconate who are approved by God, their desire is to serve the flock in the ministry of mercy. Now, very often, men are elected to the diaconate who are never elected elders, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that they haven't made the grade or move up the rank. The two offices are distinct, and some are given the gifts for one and the desire for one, and some are given the gifts and desire and calling to another office. So we want... Men in the diaconate who exude the desire to serve the flock. And we see that very clearly in Jim. And that's why we are appointing him to the place of deacon turn. We want men who love serving the Lord's people in time of need. And God, God wants men who are godly and self-controlled, qualified by their desire to serve their faith and their proven character. You see that in verses 8 through 10 and then 12 through 13. And notice that just like the elders, Paul lists of qualifications are primarily moral. They must have the desire to serve. They must have the character quality of a man who is going to minister faithfully in the Lord's church. And notice, notice several parallels. Deacons, just like elders, are to be godly spiritual leaders in the family. It is, it is vital that if they are going to spiritually serve the congregation, that they know how to spiritually serve their own families. Notice also they are to be tested in verse 10, and that's why we have this internship process. Notice also 
in this passage that the moral qualifications for the office basically fall into five categories. First of all, notice that the deacon is to have self-control in speech. A deacon, if he's doing his work well, is going to find out things about the life of, of families of the church that could be hurtful to them and divisive to the fellowship if they were to share with others. He has to be a man who can keep his lips tight, even when he finds out about a lot of things going on in the lives of needy people in the congregation. He needs to be a person who is trustworthy, and so he is to be one who has self-control in his tongue. Notice also that he has self-control in the area of drinking. This is a person who manifests self-control with regard to alcohol and is not getting high on pot or other drugs either. By doing that, he inspires confidence to, that when money is entrusted to him, it won't be misspent. Notice also he is not to be fond of gaining money unlawfully or unethically. He is, has self-control in the area of money. It, if he is in charge of taking all the tithes and gifts that you gave and making sure that they are used for the glory of God, then he needs to be a man that you can trust with money. And fifthly, the fifth category is this. He is orthodox in their beliefs. In verse 9, Paul says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Deacons are not required to be able to teach like the elders are, but they are required to hold to historic, faithful, biblical, Christian orthodoxy with a clear conscience. So you're going to have the opportunity to examine Jim at one point, whether he holds that or not. We have already, and we think that he holds to those things. And notice how God wants mercy to be tangibly ministered to by people who really believe the word. So often, in the last hundred, hundred years or so, we have seen the people that are most interested in mercy be the least interested in doctrine. But God wants the people that are serving in a local congregation to be sound and committed theologically. So God wants men who have upstanding moral character, men of dignity, husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and household. So the fundamental requirement for the office of deacon is godliness. Notice also that these requirements are not super Christian requirements, but what every man in the church should be. If you look at these requirements as a man and you see, I'm, I can't be a deacon because I don't really meet these requirements, it's time to repent and to grow in the Lord because they, these are, are floor requirements. They're not the ceiling where we all are aspiring to get. This is where we all should be to begin with. These are not super Christian requirements. This is a description of the Christian man. And that should be a description of every one of us men in this room here. Now look at verse 11. <clears throat> verse 11 says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. The, the, the original language, the Greek language, does not, does not make a dif differentiation between wife and woman. It's the same word, context dictates. Here you can see that our translation decided to use wives, other translations decide to use women. And there have been three interpretations provided for this verse. One that, as our translation shows, that these are the wives of the deacons. Another one that these are female deacons or deaconesses. 
or women who serve with the deacons but they are not ordained to the office. These are the three uh, um, interpretations being offered to this particular verse. Because a woman could not meet some of the requalifications for the office, such as being the husband of one wife, no matter what culture says, a woman cannot be the husband of one wife, then we must discard the interpretation that uh, this opens the office to women. God calls men to be deacons. Because of the proximity with the previous verse, and then if you look at verse 12, it continues to describe the male deacon. The best interpretation is that this verse is referring to the wife of the deacon, if he is married. And the reason for it here is that the nature of the work of the deacon is such that it will need the help of women in ministering to the other people in the church. This sheds light in the necessity of women's involvement in the diaconal ministry, not as an officer, but a helper. And some of the women in the church have experienced that, where I've called you, say, hey, this, this person needs some ministry, could you take care of that? And most of the time they say yes, more most willingly, and we need then women involved in the diaconal ministry that are not ordained as deacons, rightly so, because the Bible says men should be deacons. And lastly, God wants men who serve so that they can hear the well done of Jesus. See that in verse 13. And this is it, Jim. The only re- reward offered to you as a deacon is the approval of the Lord. You know, we will double your paycheck every month if you get ordained. You know, and we'll double Brandon's and Jonas's paycheck every month as well. For all eternity. <laughs> I hope you understand the joke, right? <laughs> but the only approval, the only, the only reward offered to the deacon is the approval of the Lord. Paul is saying that those who serve in this often quiet, behind-the-scenes work of deacons will be rewarded with high standing. Though they may be less in the eyes of the world, and even in the eyes of some in the church, they will be made first. It's interesting that there's no blessing associated with the office of the elder, at least not explicitly stated at the end of the qualifications. But there is one on the end of the qualification of the uh, office of the deacon. They will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, from their master. They will have great assurance and courage and boldness and freedom. We see this pattern happening all the time in the Christian church. Those who most give themselves away and most die to their own selves are the ones who live with the most freedom, joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And that's part of the office of the deacon. So deacons give themselves away in washing the feet of the brethren and serving them in mercy ministries. They attain high standing and great confidence in the Lord. And they are also an example to us because the deacon does by duty what all of us ought to do by love. Notice how Luke ends the passage about the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. In verse 7, Luke says this, Then the word of God spread... And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why? Because deacons were appointed to serve in the church. The church is blessed. The gospel goes forth. Souls are saved as deacons serve the Lord in the local church. May it be true of our church and of our deacons. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of elders and deacons to your church. We thank you that you 
have provided so abundantly to us in this congregation with faithful men who are willing and able to serve in these offices. Be with us as we consider Jim for the next few months uh, towards nomination to the office. We pray to be with our current deacons. Bless them mightily. We thank you for their service. And help us all to serve each other as Christ has served us. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.